messages before we kick off a new sermon series that you don't need to know about yet. Um, but today, I want to talk about a topic that, honestly, I, I frequently talk about a lot in our church. And I do it because it's so integral to the DNA of our church, but so, in a greater manner, integral to the DNA of being a follower of Jesus. And that's the topic of forgiveness. And listen, I know, again, I'm going to say, I've talked about this a lot here, and you've heard it a lot, and you might be thinking, Pastor, I've heard enough about this, but I cannot express to you enough how important it is for us to understand, embody, exercise, and live the topic of forgiveness out as Christians. If we don't understand forgiveness, then we're, we're not going to use it or we're going to misuse it at some point, and that is detrimental to us as Christians. Um, but let me remind you of our mission as a church, our purpose statement, that if anybody asked you, hey, what is Glad Tidings all about? This is what we would hope you would, having experienced, not just heard, but having experienced, actually want to respond immediately to the individual who asks you, what's Glad Tidings all about? Well, you would be inclined to say, Glad Tidings is a church that's all about love. We are known for love. That's what we need to be all about. Amen? Amen? Now, when we describe the concept of love, the principle of love, we need to understand that it is so godly, it is so God-given, and it is so unique, and it is not meant to be manipulated, mishandled, or twisted to fit a form of love that the world says it is or what we decide it might be. There's a standard of love that we see clearly exercised by God throughout Scripture. Again, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know as a part of this church, but it's important to be reminded of it um, because there are so many things that as human beings we might be known for. For example, throughout my life, I've been known by many a thing, for many things. Currently, what's one of the things that I, I'm just, I'm really, I'm really curious to get your feedback right now. You can shout it out. If you're looking at me, what am I known for? What was that? That's right. That was the first one on my mind. I'm the cookie lover. I'm the cookie monster, right? And I eat in excess. I'm just curious. What else would you say that, that you know me for? Teaching. What? what? Teaching. Teaching. Okay. What else? Pastoring. Great. Awesome. What else? What, what's that? Loving cake. What's that? Forgetful. I love that, Kurt. I was thinking, I actually wrote that one down. Forgetfulness. Man, and that is nothing new, and it's only getting worse. And I'm only 28. Um, anything else you can think of? What? what? Workout feed. Okay. Okay. Baseball t-shirt. Bible nerd? I thought you were going to say something about white, but okay. All right. Bible nerd. Okay. Hey, that's, that's true. Um, Good. I'm sure there's a lot of things. Throughout my life, though, I've been known for a lot of things. A lot of those things I'm proud of, I got no problem with. And there's a lot of things that I am not proud of that I've been known for throughout my life. You know, when I was young and in high school, I was known for a lot of bad things. I was known as the one who you wanted to go and get a laugh out of. I could make you laugh in very inappropriate ways. I mean, like very inappropriate ways. Um, that shall not be discussed in detail here. Um, I was known as kind of an angry person, very angry. And it wasn't just because of my body language, which was certainly a part of it. It was because I was a very angry person. 
I literally walked around my life looking at everybody as competition. For one reason or another, it's like, I'm going to find a reason to be competitive with you and you're my enemy, Kurt. So it's like, I hate you. Not really, but back then I did. That was my feeling. It had nothing to do with the color of your skin. It was just everybody's my enemy, male, female, didn't matter. I, I was known as that type of person. To my brothers, I was probably known as an annoying little brother. And all the older siblings probably said amen about your younger siblings. Um, to my mother to this day, uh, she and my brothers always view me as the third child, as the favorite, right? I was known as the favorite because I was the youngest. So th there are just so many things that we can become known for throughout our lives that stick. That might be good, that might be bad, but I need to remind you today that as followers of Jesus Christ, there is one defining attribute that needs to stand out above all else in our walk with Jesus and that is love. It really is. Again, let me convince you. Jesus says that by your love, by this principle lived out, fleshed out as a part of who you are, clearly visible for all to see through your verbs, through your words, through your actions, but also through, through just who you are, the world is going to know that you are really followers of me is what Jesus said. He goes, you can quote the Bible, you can know the Bible, you can go to church, you can give tithes, money, whatever. You can, you can serve people in the community to your blue in the face. You can open up non-profitable organizations that feed the homeless, that clothe the poor, that give homes to the destitute, that help. You can do everything under the sun that on paper is godly, is holy, and is right. But if you do not at your core foundation have the love of Christ... It means nothing. And Jesus says that is the defining characteristic that the world is going to be able to look at and say, yeah, there's something different about them. Because they're doing stuff like I see other secular organizations do, but they're doing it in such a way that I've never seen before. And they're doing it in such a cohesive unification that I've never seen before. And they do so with, with no expectation for anything in return. They don't hold anything over your head. They might get mad at each other, but they're able to reconcile with each other. There's something different. That's that love. Further, we've, we've preached on, on this as well before, but 1 John talks about the significance of, of understanding that if we say we love God and that we know him, then we treat each other in a particular manner that's consistent with that love. Not hating each other, essentially. The exact opposite, not despising each other. The Bible is explicit time and time again about this principle, this topic of love how it has to be at the core foundation of who we are. Now, while I've introduced this, this topic of love, I'm, I'm really going to focus a little bit more on what the key ingredient to this biblical understanding of love is. And this biblical understanding of love is what I mentioned. It's forgiveness. If you do not practice forgiveness, if you are incapable of forgiving, then you do not love the way that God loves you, and therefore you don't really know God the way that you might want to or say that you know God. In order for you to know God, you love God. In order for you to love God, you love people. In order for you to love people, you forgive people. But the question is that we're going to talk about today is, you know, we're really... 
when should I forgive? How, how far is too far that a person goes that shouldn't be worthy of my forgiveness? And we've talked about this before. I preached a message on this topic from the book of Matthew concerning the, this, this story that Jesus tells of, of a man that was indebted to a king. And he owed him money that this man never would be capable of repaying him. It was an exorbitant amount of money that the man borrowed that the king now was calling him back to pay. And he couldn't pay it. But then the king forgives him because the man just cries out and says, please give me more time. Give me more, which is fascinating because no amount of time would have given this man the ability to pay back this king. And, and, and the king in his forgiveness forgave the debt. And then you know the rest of that story. The man turns around and he has somebody indebted to him who owed him a uh, hundred denarii which a denarii was a, a day's wage. So that's still a significant amount of money, but it's something you could pay back in a third of a year or less than that, right? And yet the man who had received such, such forgiveness that could not be measured from the king turned around and wouldn't show that forgiveness, and he imprisoned the man that owed him 100 days worth of wages. And, and that whole context is a, is a conversation that the apostle Peter is having with Jesus, saying, hey, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive somebody? In other words, you know, Jesus, there, there's got to be a line, right? There's got to be a line that we can draw that says, I, I'm required to forgive as a, as a follower of Jesus this much, a measurement that says, I, I've forgiven enough. I don't need to forgive anymore because enough is enough, right? And then Jesus tells him that story, and, and, and the moral of it is, listen, God forgives you 70 times 7, and that, that's the idea of perfection. It's not to be taken literally as we would in multiplication. Say, oh, all right, seven, all right, that's how much. No, no. It's the idea of you, you never stop forgiving because God never stops forgiving you. All right, so, so that, that's, I preached a message on that here before, and I want to remind you of that. But today I'm going to come from a different portion of Scripture that still deals with this, but in a, a slightly different manner. Um, and that's First Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter two. But before we get there, let me read for you back in the book of Matthew, where that same story was found that I just summarized for you. Matthew chapter six, verse twelve, and then fourteen and fifteen. This is a part of the Lord's prayer when the disciples come to Jesus and say, "Jesus, teach us how to pray." Because we need to know how to pray appropriately to our Heavenly Father, by extension to you. And Jesus goes down the list of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, thy will be done. You, you know that one. Whether you know it by heart, you've heard it at some point, it's a famous prayer. It's a prayer that is meant to be prayed regularly. It's supposed to inform our daily conversation with our Heavenly Father. Our calling out to Him, our crying out to Him. And it's in a sense, trying to be exhaustive by hitting every major point of your life. And there's an aspect, there's a portion of it in verse 12 that says this, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, just stop right there really quick. And, and I want you to think about, again, the significance of this prayer as needing to be prayed every, constantly, essentially, constantly. Let this whole prayer inform your prayer life. And you get to this aspect of it, this principle of it. And Jesus says, when you pray, I want you to regularly pray for forgiveness. 
from me, that I would forgive you your trespasses. Number one, that is vitally important for us to do as Christians, to regularly come before the Lord in repentance, saying, God, forgive me of my sins. It's vital for us to do that so that we never stop miss so, so that we don't miss at any point the fact that it is God and God alone that sets us free. And furthermore, that we never miss the fact that we are always in the wrong when it comes before God. Because the minute we, we forget that, then we become self-deluded and we become full of it and we think, oh, my way's the way. And then we, we stray. And we're no longer in a healthy, dynamic relationship with the Lord. Now we're going back to our regular lives. We're going back to our old ways. We're going back to thinking that we're the gods of our universe and we have the authority to set our destiny before us. It's like, that's, that's trash. And that's essentially why God is saying, you got to remember how desperately you need me and how fiercely I will always forgive you. All right. But then he goes on and he says, and, and here's the crux, as you also have forgiven your debtors. Forgive me as I also have forgiven my debtors. When I pray, Lord, forgive me, and then follow it up with, as I also have forgiven my debtors, I need to remember that the only way for me to truly experience the love of God is by having shown the love of God. And right here, that's done through forgiveness. Forgive me my debts as I also have forgiven others. And then he finishes this whole prayer by coming back to this topic of forgiveness. He talked about, give us this day our daily bread, lead us not into temptation, your kingdom come. Those are all isolated, incredibly important topics to think about, to discuss, and to understand. But while only verse 12 is about forgiveness and debts, now he, he comes back and he brings it all back to, to our indebtedness and the topic of forgiveness, which you need to first make a point to recognize is this is vitally important. Listen up. I better not miss this. And here's what he says. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Wonderful, but your mind better start be recognizing there's an if. There's an if. There's a contingency that comes with the forgiveness of God. 15, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is an aspect of the love of God that we need to be confronted with. While his love is unconditionally given to us, it can only be received when we posture ourselves in this manner. God says, I'm not expecting you to be perfect, but I am expecting you to be humble. And you are never going to be able to receive this gift if your heart isn't in the right place. And forgiveness is the kicker right here. He's not, again, there, there's nothing else that he talks about time and time again. We saw it with David, the difference between Saul and David when it came to being confronted with sin. It's repentance. It's repentance. It's all about that humility of heart. And right here, God says, no. Go, you, you might want to quote Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? You're right. But I guarantee you, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm waiting to go before Paul today and say, Paul, but everybody tries to say nothing, and, and here's the deal. Here, here's what I want to add, even though I know this is touchy territory adding to Scripture, and, I, and I'm not adding it, but I 99.9% bet you that you can be present in that conversation in heaven when I go before Paul and I say, Paul, can, can I add this? Nothing can separate us from the love of God except yourself. 
And, and, and again, what I'm getting at there is, is this very specific isolated topic is when you refuse to accept the love of God because you are so prideful in your heart. Well, have you ever re- refused a gift from somebody for a particular reason? You can do that. You can do that. Maybe you're, you're sour towards the person who's trying to you know, get back in your good graces or maybe as a toddler it wasn't what you wanted and you kicked and you screamed and said, I don't want that. You can reject a gift. That's by nature what it is, something that you can freely receive or freely reject. And God does not impose his will upon us, hence his love. And and right here in this aspect, we're seeing this idea that, hey, you can't take that gift from God without taking from it the expectations of now passing it along. That's what the gift of God is meant to be used in such a manner. And you receive it and you reciprocate it. It doesn't work any other way than that. Okay, so that sets the tone for where we're going. Jesus said, if, if, if you want to learn how to pray, if you want to be in a relationship with God and commune with him regularly, this is an aspect of your relationship that you need to understand and have under your belt. Jesus taught us to adopt a habit of repentant prayer. All right, that's what we just read. The minute you forget how much you owe is the moment you start living a double standard. Oh, I'll receive the grace, receive the love, receive the forgiveness, but I won't show it. That's not how God works. To know God, to know his love is to know the extent of his forgiveness. How far he is willing to go to forgive you in spite of how far you've gone to be undeserving of it. The only way to know this forgiveness, the only way to know, to experience the Father forgive me so that I can be set free of the pain of my past, the only way for you to know that forgiveness is for you to show it yourself. It doesn't mean that God doesn't give it. It just means you you don't know it. And I promise you, you will have and probably already have had many opportunities, many opportunities to show grace, to show forgiveness. This isn't something that God threw out there saying, yeah, maybe some people will go through it and some people won't. No, this is something you're going to go through in a fallen and broken world. There is brokenness, there is pain, people wrong you, people hurt you. This kind of just set the stage for now what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Starting in the fifth verse, here's what Paul says. I'm going to read the whole thing for you, and today I'm just going to break it down. I'm going to really, in in Shanice's words, I'm going to Bible nerd it out for you today. I'm going to geek you out today. Um, Starting verse 5, it says this. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead... You ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Right here. Uh, I just want to take a moment. Let's ground ourselves. Let's, let's just put our feet firmly on the ground. And let's just ask God to 
right now just quiet our hearts and, and humble our hearts before him so we can receive his word. Take a moment just, just in peace and, and seek God, and then I'll, I'll pray for us. Lord, I pray right now that every eye would be opened. To see the goodness of God. To see your truth, the truth, the only truth. Your word, your way. That it would set us on a path to live lives that are worthy of the calling that we have received from you. Father, let your word just come alive to us and let it lead us to transformed thinking, I pray. Amen. So I read that scripture for you and you were probably like, I don't understand what's going on at all here. Um, some of you that, uh, for, for my How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth midweekers, you, you, you're going to understand what I mean when I say when, when we read, especially an epistle, towards the end or smack in the middle of it, then you're, you're left wondering, like, what is this all about? Remember, we've done that as an exercise before where I read for you a portion of a letter that could be interpreted as like, oh, man, something really bad's happening. But then you go back to the beginning of the letter and you realize, oh, wait a minute, this, this is loving. This is nice. This is gentle. The point is you got to know the whole letter in order to understand the context. Epistles take the cake when it comes to understanding that. So I got to give you just a little bit of context here for you to understand what's going on because Paul is speaking a lot directly to a situation that's going on in the church of Corinth. There are two letters recorded in scripture that we have in our canon, our Bible, that are addressed to the Corinthian church. There's likely actually four, two letters that are lost. First Corinthians might be actually second Corinthians and second Corinthians is might actually four Corinthians as we would understand it. We don't know that for sure. It's just very likely based on what we see when Paul writes because he uses a lot even in 1 Corinthians to say in the letter that I wrote or when I spoke to you previously, implying he already wrote to them. Anyway, there's, I share that to say, number one, there's a lot going on in the Corinthian church that Paul constantly is addressing, constantly addressing. Um, there's also a lot of good going on in the church that Paul is trying to make even better that's going on in this church. Paul is the one who planted this church. He's an apostle that itinerated and would plant churches in different cities, and he'd spend a couple of years, if God allowed him to, to allow that church to have a solid foundation where they could grow. Corinth was certainly not the exception to that, and they were growing. Um, but one of the issues that arose in 1 Corinthians that is likely what the issue was that Paul is addressing here is the issue of the incestuous man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where there was a man in the community, a fellow believer, who started having sexual relations with his father's wife or maybe like concubine. We don't know that for sure, but bottom line is that was a woman that was spoken for that was his own father's, and he gets in bed with her. And Paul is addressing it in 1 Corinthians, and he's being very sharp with the rest of the church. He's saying, 
I'm hearing reports of this type of immorality, a type of immorality that even makes unbelievers cringe, where they're on the outside looking and saying, we don't even go that far, man. What's up with those Christian people? What are they going, what are they allowing to happen in their community? And Paul's like, you are tarnishing the witness of Christ. Get it under control. Handle it. And he's very strict. He says, I've already judged this man in my spirit that you are to expel him from among you. In other words, this man is not going to listen to reason. The only thing that's going to get through to him is the consequence of expulsion. He is not in this moment allowed to be able to experience the blessing of church community, the health of church community, the love that happens in church community, the bearing each other's burdens that happens in a church community, the fellowship that happens in a church community. He doesn't get that right now. Because if you continue to give that to him, he's not going to recognize the error of his ways, right? Consequence. We've talked about this before very recently. Stop shaming shame. And Paul says he needs to feel ashamed right now. He needs to experience a sorrow and a grief that will, Lord willing, lead him back to Christ. Now, if you jump to where we are in 2 Corinthians, this is likely, likely the individual that Paul is referring to. When he says, there's a guy that caused me grief, you grief, all of us grief. And, you know, you did what you were supposed to and you sent him out of the church so that he was able to experience the consequences of his actions. But now we don't want that grief to become excessive, implying that, okay, because Paul would not welcome somebody back who was unrepented. This man had repented. He was truly sorry and now he was to be brought back into the fold. So that, that's, that's kind of the context here. And I want to break down all of the significant words that we need to understand that carry such weight behind just this short, powerful section of Scripture that has to do with forgiveness. Okay, so in verse 1, here we go. The first word that I want to point out, excuse me, in verse 5, the first word that I want to point out is the word grief. And let me give you a definition of Greek from a Greek lexicon that is very accurate. Um, it's, it's this. It means to cause severe mental or emotional distress. Come on now. How many of you here have ever experienced grief according to this definition? I sure have. Severe mental or emotional distress. To be real with you, every time I'm about to go, for some reason, it's when I'm going to do a funeral. Lord knows why, but when I'm about to go and do a funeral and I got about 10 minutes before I need to start the funeral and I haven't even left the house yet, I can't find my keys. The amount of emotional distress that I go into is uncanny. I mean, I'm ready to start putting holes in the wall because for some reason I think maybe it fell down one of the ducts and I need to rip the drywall out to get to that duct. I mean, I, I, I really go into a rage when it comes to that. Something so small, but what about big issues? What about when, when somebody that we know and we love and we've trusted for the majority of our life stabs us in the back? What about when you have a parent that you see for the first time in a real human light and they aren't as infallible as you thought they were? It, it causes something in you to be so distressed emotionally and mentally. What about 
when you are a part of a church community of brothers and sisters that are supposed to be operating under this word of God and all of its timeless truths, but then you have one or two or a couple that start to think that they can live in such a way that is contrary to the word of God, and they think they're above it, but they're still coming together and worshiping Jesus on Sunday and amen and, and hallelujah and, and, and yeah, and, and you're just like, I don't, I don't get it. I'm, I'm, you're grieved. You are in emotional or mental distress. Um, now, I said that this is likely the incestuous man that Paul is referring to of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Some have argued that it could have just been referring to false teachers or it could have been referring to individuals that just straight up were trying to tear down Paul's apostolic authority, which was a major issue that he addresses in the entirety of 2 Corinthians. Now, here's the deal. Regardless of what it was, the incestuous man, false teachers, going back to pagan practices, people tearing down Paul's credibility as an apostolic leader in the church, the bottom line is that grief is the result of the misstep of one individual, and grief has now touched everybody in the church community. Paul says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me. Paul's actually trying to speak softly here to the church, but what he's saying here is, I'm the offended one. I'm the one who ought to be offended by this. Again, if you just take it based on the fact that he was the apostle that planted this church, that gave them the foundational truths of the gospel. And now there's an individual who is choosing to go rogue at the expense of Paul, his leadership, and the whole church. I'm offended, but you know what? Here's what Paul is saying to, to the church. You need to understand, it's caused more grief to you. Maybe then you even realize, but you all have felt. And, and I'm going to come back to that at the end by what Paul says at the end of this in verse 11. It has to do with Satan. So just put a pin in that. Um, but, but let me keep going with you. Uh, we're going to jump to verse 6 now. In verse 6, he says specifically um, that the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. That word punish there actually means in a literal sense to express strong disapproval of somebody through rebuke, reprove, censoring them, or, or speaking seriously, harshly, warning them in order to prevent a particular outcome. It's this idea of punishment that will lead to life change. I want there to be a knowable, clearly understandable change transformation in the individual's conduct because of my punishment, because of how I'm going to harshly treat them. And again, this is likely referring to the excommunication of the individual, saying, hey, here's the hard truth. You don't follow the ways of the Lord. You continue to live in this way, even though you know and we've shown you it's wrong. You can't be a part of this body. Now, now, again, that, that's really harsh, and honestly, it needs to be, but we're going to get to that love and forgiveness. That, that's, that's really where we're going with this. Um, now, he does say this. He says, um, the, the, specifically, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority. And I think this is worth noting. It's not the main idea that we need to understand here, but Paul is making a point here. He's, reading, he's writing this letter that's going to be read in, in the entirety of the church community. And he says specifically, you all have 
correctly confronted this man, but actually not all of you, the majority of you. In other words, Paul is clearly saying, I know there are some of you here that reject the word of God, and I know there are some of you here that think that, oh, that's not loving, Paul. You shouldn't be harsh to individuals. Therefore, we shouldn't do this. Live and let live. Let him be. He'll, he'll be fine. It's not hurting us. Paul said, I know there are some of you, but I'm speaking to the majority right now. You've, do, you've done right, and the punishment you've shown, it, it was necessary. That's just, that's a little side note. And he says specifically, now though, that this punishment, this excommunication, it's fulfilled its purpose. And now we've got to move to the next step, which is reconciliation. Reconciliation. We need to welcome this man back into the fold. And he specifically now, in verse 7, gives very vivid imagery through his wording. He says, number one, forgive him. Forgive him. Literally, that idea of forgiveness, is, it means a canceling of debt, a canceling of a sum of money. Luke uh, 7.42 or Matthew 18, as I shared with you before, uh, the, the individual who was indebted to the king and then the other individual, that's literally the same word that's used in Luke being used by Paul here. If you really want to have the mind of Christ and show the love of Christ, you've got to now go beyond confrontation, and now you've got to go to forgiveness. Okay. One more definition of this is, is written this way. This idea of forgiveness is to delight in doing someone a favor rather than getting back at them. How many of you really forgive somebody in light of that definition? Wanting. Wanting. That's, that's what this is getting at here. You want to forgive someone. You want to take delight in doing someone that has offended you a favor rather than getting back at them. I'll be honest with you, a lot of times I don't want to forgive them, and if I forgive them, I do it in such a way that it still makes them feel crappy because I want them to feel crappy. I want them to know, even though they've already gone through that knowing of difficulty and punishment, whatever that looks like, and I say, okay, now we're going to reconcile you back to the community. I'm tempted to feel in, in, in certain ways in my heart that like, yeah, but they need to remember. They need to carry that with them because they better never forget the crap that they put me through. So I welcome them back, but I'm never going to let them forget, right? That's not what that definition of forgiveness shows us. He goes on and he says, okay, so you cancel the debt that they owe you and you delight in doing so. And now he says you comfort them. <laughs> Come on, Paul. You are going too far. It's one thing to forgive, but I don't forget, so don't ask them. So don't expect me to go knocking on their door and extend an olive branch. I, I, I'll do my good deed if they're in need, but I'm not going to go out of my way. to come. That, that's literally what it means. It means that word comfort in Greek means to invite somebody to your side. You're inviting them to come into your presence so that your very presence can be the means that gives them joy and life and refreshing. That's the power that you have to impact an individual. In light of this context, think about that. 
It's not just about the person that you don't know that you want to share the gospel with because of how great Jesus is and he doesn't count their sins against them. He doesn't count an individual's sins against them. Think about it in light of this context. The individual who has wronged you, who has cut you so deeply that you now have the opportunity to invite into your presence and say, I want you to know, I forgive you, I love you, and I'm here to comfort you. Mm. You don't like that. That's what it's saying. He goes on and he says this. He says in verse 7, again, let me go back and just keep reading it. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That first word overwhelmed literally means to drown, swallow up, or cause the demise of. If you, Paul is saying, if you continue to extend, if you continue to live in this first phase of reconciliation, which is punishment, and you don't move on to the forgiveness and the comfort, then you are going to, by your own hand, cause the destruction of this man. You are murdering this man's spirit or this woman's spirit. You're killing them. You are drowning them. And we got to move on from there because that's not the gospel. If they are repentant, then you got to move on to that next step of reconciliation. Wow, how quickly the tables can, can turn on us, right? Where we think, I'm the one that was wrong. I'm the one that they should be apologizing to. I'm the one. Says, no, 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 the, the, the punishment they've already experienced. Let's move on. Let's move on. Don't drown them. Don't drown them. So keep going. Excessive sorrow. Um, that word for sorrow is the same exact word that was used as the, at the beginning for grief. It's the same Greek word. The idea of mental or emotional distress. Paul is saying this was a good thing that the man experienced at the time. For him, it was right. He caused us emotional distress, and that wasn't right. His misstep caused us to be in such a state that the body of Christ shouldn't perpetrate against each other. But he did it, and we know it, and we felt it, we've lived it. Now, he's lived the consequences of his actions, and he's experienced grief, sorrow of a similar kind. But you need to understand it can be excessive. Again, if you allow this individual, if you force this individual to remain in this state, it is excessive. Paul seems to be indicating here that there is a healthy measure of emotional distress directed at the man, not at the people in the beginning, not at him in the church. That was wrong. That's not a healthy emotional distress. The man put them in that position because of sin. This man, he's saying, there's a good level of emotional distress. Don't shame, shame. Stop shaming, shame. Let him feel the dirt, the wickedness, the weight of what he's done in his wrongdoing. But now, again, it can go too far. It can become excessive, and we are not about that. We are not about keeping people in the dirt and making them grovel before us never being able to experience forgiveness because, oh, no, 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 they're never going to forget what they did to me, and I'm always going to hold them under my foot. They're always going to remember. I'm always going to make sure my spouse remembers that. I forgive them. I let them or her back into my bed, but you know what? They're never going to be allowed to forget. Mm -mm. It's not the gospel. And I'm not speaking as someone high or mighty. 
Like seriously, I feel, I, and I can't even imagine, imagine how this woman right here would ever literally cheat on me. I can't because I, I know she wouldn't. But every once in a while, the enemy gets it in my head. And it's a what if. And I'm like, okay, I preach about forgiveness. And if she cheated on me, could I? It, 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 it overwhelms me. It literally turns my stomach in knots. And I know she wouldn't even do it. But that's the power of just imagination. And I think about it. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know until I get there. But I pray to God that I would. Because I see so clearly the Bible says you gotta. You gotta. So. In the church. The heart of confrontation must always be reconciliation, never retribution. That's, that's that point that I've just been saying to you over and over in different words. It, it, let me say it this way. If you're using your knowledge of God and his gospel to your advantage, causing harm to another, causing excessive sorrow, causing them to be buried alive and drowned to their demise, that's manipulation. You're misusing and manipulating your knowledge of the word of God, of his gospel for your own personal gain. That is not godly. That is not the love of God. That is not the way of God. Okay, now let me just ask you this question in line with this point. Does your passion for confrontation match your passion for reconciliation? Are you so consumed with the conversation of confronting sin? First of all, let me just say this, that it's a good thing to have the courage to confront sin because a lot of people don't. So I don't want you to feel ashamed for that. That's something that we are mandated in scripture to be ready to do. And to ask God for the courage to do and the power of the Holy Spirit to do. When we see, see, when we see sin, we confront it. We address it. But, but this is where I'm focusing now is the idea that we don't, we don't like to move past confrontation. Because maybe for some of us, man, we live off of it. It fuels us. We, we love it. Maybe you didn't even know you loved it. But by seeing the state that you put your perpetrator in through your confrontation, and now they're on their knees before you, it makes you feel big. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel greater than you've ever been in your life. And you want to now start to develop a pattern, a lifestyle, a habit, a personality that just thrives off of confrontation that has now deviated from God's biblical form of confrontation. And you know that you are not enacting biblical confrontation within this bigger realm of reconciliation if your passion for reconciliation isn't equaled by that passion for confrontation. One cannot outweigh the other at any point. They need to be equally sought after. I confront because the outcome must always be reconciliation. God does not punish us to put us in pain and leave us in pain. The Bible says that the Lord disciplines those he loves. So if we're going to confront somebody, it must always be with the mindset, hey, I want him to come back to the fold. I want it to come back to the fold. Verse 8. I've got to leave this here. In verse 8. He goes on and he says, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. I don't know what this word means. Really simply, 
a, a very important word for us today. Today, The word reaffirm here in Greek means validation. Validation. How many of us seek validation? You don't have to raise your hand. I promise you, you all seek to be validated in some way, shape, or form. Might be on your looks, might be from your spouse, might be from your job, might be from your bank account, might be from your skills, might be from how proficient you are in a particular area of your life. You find validation in, in shapes and forms and, and principles and aspects of your life. But right here, Paul says something profound for us. He says, I urge you, therefore, after this man has gone through the proper procedure of confrontation, has been confronted through the punishment that this sin brought about, now we're not going to cause him to be excessively sorrowful so that he's overwhelmed to the point where he is spiritually dead and cast away from the fold and wants nothing to do with God anymore. Now, now that we've forgiven him and now that we've comforted him, I want you to understand that your very action gives him validation. And this is important. A lot of times we want to say that our validation only ought to come from God. Your identity is in God and God alone. But God has given us a community of believers that are here to validate one another. You don't think I asked my wife for validation? You better believe I asked my wife for validation. I am a child, man. If you knew the conversations that we had, you would be like, let me give him a binky and a bib and tuck him in at night. I need validation. <laughs> But, but I don't want to get excessive with this and, and make it seem like your validation should only come from, no, that, that, that's not what I'm saying. It should only come from people and, and all that. No, but there is a healthy measure of validation that God says, give one another. Give one another. Show each other that you are doing the right thing. Say, hey, good job, my brother. Good job, my sister. You're doing well. I know where you came from, but I see where you are now. Keep going. Keep going. The power of Christ is at work in you. Keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. We are meant to validate one another within the body of Christ. And right here, he says, by your forgiveness and your comfort, you are validating him. And now Paul is really putting the nail in the coffin right here for that, I would say, especially that group of naysayers that didn't want any of this to go down. He, he's saying, listen, I know he wronged you. He wronged me too, and you know it, but he's wronged all of us, and I know how deeply he cut you. I know how deep that betrayal goes in your life. I know how used and abused you feel. I know how used and abused you are right now. We're all experiencing the grief that that one individual brought about, but you know what? His punishment's done. It's time to move on. And in so doing, you now validate the individual. You show them through your action, we welcome you back. We accept you back. We accept you. And you're not worthless. That's a tall order for some of us that haven't practiced this process of reconciliation. Because you're still thinking, yeah, but you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what some people have done for me. Maybe I don't. We'll get there. We'll get there. And use that word love. And that word love is the famous version of that word that you know so well, agape, which means unconditional. 
unconditional. He's, he's just, again, driving the point home right here. He's saying unconditional, unreserved, unmerited grace is necessary. It is the key to either making or breaking someone. But you've got to show it in this manner. You can't pick and choose parts of the process that you like and dislike. There is a punishment aspect to love. And then there is a forgiving aspect of love, a comforting aspect, a validating aspect of love. You can't pick and choose which ones you want to show when you want to show it. God has said it for our benefit, for our sake, and for everybody's sake to understand who they are in Christ. So first, you need to know that when you come repentant before God, he never withholds his love from you. I just, I just want to say that. I want to say that if you're wondering, yeah, but does this mean that God won't show me his love? No, he always will if you come in a posture ready to receive. Because why is he going to give you something you don't want? He, 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 he's extending it, but repentance is literally saying, yeah, thank you. I want it. I need it. But you don't, you don't have to do that. He can be like, I got what you need right here. I'm giving it for free. It's, it's going to change your life. But you got to want it. That's humility, repentance, right? All right. Second, but so, so he always gives that. Second, you need to start sharing that love, right? All right. So I told you you can't pick and choose. Any, anybody ever enjoyed the pleasure of a gumball machine? Right? Yeah, no, maybe, you know. Um, we, at one point, we had friends that owned my... my um, uh, that were in the, the church that my parents pastored one time, a golf, a golf range and putt-putt course and all that. We'd spend so much time there. They had an arcade and everything. It was so fun being there. They had a gumball machine. Man, I would always, always just savagely steal quarters if I wasn't given quarters so I can go and get as many gumballs as possible. And yes, it was for the sugar rush. It was to shove as many gumballs in my mouth and just suck on them until like all the sugar came off and then chew them and, blah, 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 and I'm like producing like some sort of like, like, like other creature, otherworldly thing in my mouth. But a big part of it was I loved that, that whole sequence that would take place as I put the quarter in, and I, and then, pop it out, and I got my gumball. I loved it, but I got in trouble because there were times that I started to think that maybe I don't need to use the quarter. I didn't find a quarter. I didn't get a quarter, so I bet if I like I would try to start messing and manipulating the machine in order to get the prize. I wanted it so badly. And, and I actually learned to do it really well because somebody donated to the church a gumball machine that my father ended up leaving in our basement forever. And I messed with it all the time. So I got really good at manipulating a gumball machine. So don't ask me to manipulate a gumball machine if you value the integrity of my walk with the Lord because you know that I can do it. I, I, I just want you to see what can be the case when it comes to, to love. We really can try it and twist it and turn it and pick it up and manipulate it so that we get the prize that gives us that, that pleasure that we want so badly. And, and we don't want to go about the prof, proper procedural method that God has clearly 
instituted for us to follow. We want it our way, when we want it, how we want it. That's not the love of God. That's, that's again, just something that, I, that I'm hoping you're seeing. Um, so you can't choose to withhold that love or give that love the way you want to. You can't. Uh, just let me say it this way. Don't love someone who needs to be grieved because of their wrongdoing. Don't be like the minority of, of this letter that Paul is clearly pointing out, saying some of you didn't want to follow the proper procedures of, of reconciliation, which is love. They got to go through that pain. You don't get to choose. Don't, don't, don't say, no, 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 we're going to love them because that's not love. That, that's a misstep. Also, don't withhold love because you're still holding on to the grief you've experienced. Don't be that person that says, you know what, they wronged me and you know what, I'm not, I'm not okay with it yet. You, you can't do that. All right, let me, let me keep going. Verse 9. Paul, he, he mentions now in verse 9, another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test. He's not speaking about a different topic here. He's still speaking about this same topic, this same issue at hand. And he said, Another reason that I wrote you was to test you. Now, this is another word that we don't think is something that applies to us post-salvation. We think that once we've received the grace and the mercy of Jesus, smooth sound from here, right? Smooth sound. I don't need to worry about a thing. Don't you worry about a thing. Whatever that song is, right? Like you're, You're thinking about that right now. That is not the love and the grace of Jesus again. I I know I'm hitting this hard to you over and over and over again. God says, you know, I've given you this gift, but now I'm going to be watching you to see how you use that gift. Because again, I have always intended that gift to be reciprocated. It doesn't end with you. Share it to other people. And Paul is saying, you know what, I need you to understand, Corinthians, that while this individual wronged you and while so far you've done everything right, I, I want to point out to you that this was also a test, that me as your spiritual father needed to see where you were at. I needed to test your maturity. And he's saying they've done a good job. And he's just giving them the last step. He's like, all right, now here's the last step, the last step of the test. I need to see that you don't mishandle that gift of grace, that gift of love. Finish the process of reconciliation. Do not allow the man to experience excessive sorrow. Paul informs his readers of this test to test the sincerity of their faith by measuring their obedience. All right, now verse 10, we're getting close to the end. Verse 10 says this. Paul says he is forgiving just as they are. Now this is interesting. Now, this is the very point that some scholars have debated as to whether or not this is referring to that incestuous man, because they read that and they say, wait, wait, Paul is forgiving just as they are forgiving to the man. What Paul is here doing is now he's making the Corinthians, his readers, the object of having received Paul's forgiveness. Paul is saying, hey, let me remind you, if you're still unsure, if you're still not Sure, if you're ready to take that step to forgive that man who has grieved all of us, let me remind you, I've forgiven you. And this might be referring possibly to, okay, the fact that maybe the reason these Corinthians didn't take affirmative action back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when the sin was apparent and obvious and regular 
was because of the question of Paul's apostolic authority. Maybe they said, you know, maybe we don't need to listen to Paul on this one. Maybe he's got it wrong because we got these people teaching us other things. And, and, or maybe it had to do with they wanted to go back to their pagan ways. And they were saying, well, in our pagan ways, we didn't have to deal with it in this manner. So, you know what, maybe we don't have to. And that caused grief to Paul himself. He says, you wronged me. So, again, wh whatever the reason might have been, Paul is saying, I want you to remember something. If you're on the, the fence about forgiving this individual who has wronged us, I forgave you. And he says, I did so in the sight of Christ. And that's the biggest kicker of it all, because now Paul's bringing Jesus into this. And when it comes to forgiveness, the last thing that you want to do is bring Jesus into it if you don't want to forgive. If you want to remain in unforgiveness, keep Jesus out of it, and it gets really easy. But the minute you bring the work of the cross into it, I promise you, your foundation of unforgiveness will be completely dismantled. Completely dismantled. You cannot hold on to unforgiveness in light of the gospel. You can't. Well, you can. But you shouldn't. So, he says, what I've forgiven, it's been for your sake. And then in verse 11, he, he brings all this to, to a final character. And he introduces Satan to this. He says, you know, I forgave you and you need to forgive this individual ultimately because Satan might outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Now he just throws Satan into this. And, and, and this is really important. The word outwit here in the Greek means to be taken advantage of. Or within the context of money forgiveness, to be robbed. You know, um, I'm sharing this story, uh, and, and I know my wife won't like it, even though it has really nothing to do with her. But when we first got married, we fell into a scheme. You know, it's really embarrassing to say, but we fell into a Craigslist scheme. We were trying to sell something, and for some reason, we didn't think it through, and we ended up giving money to somebody, and it's so frustrating for me to think about at this point, but we just weren't wise enough in that moment, and we ended up getting robbed. We, get, we, we wanted to sell something to help with a little bit of debt that we already had, and we figured, hey, this is going to help us, and we ended up getting outwitted by a schemer, and we ended up becoming more indebted. And now we're worse off than we were when we started. And Paul is saying this is exactly what Satan wants to do in this realm of reconciliation. He wants you to be so focused on the topic of unforgiveness. He wants you to become so consumed with your grief that you constantly use it as a means to justify why you ought not to forgive that individual. And he's trying to justify the reason why that individual is indebted to you. Yes, that individual is indebted to you, but now the enemy is robbing you of being free from the debt of emotional and mental despair. Now he's just digging you in deeper and you're letting him do it to you because you have bought into the lie that is from the pit of hell itself, from the mouth of the father of lies himself that says, no, you're justified in your unforgiveness. Keep holding on to it. And God is saying, you don't see where that's getting you. It's getting you nowhere real quick. And in fact, it's hurting you faster. Here's the point. While God is trying to restore us, Satan wants to rob us. That's how he actively works. 
God, reconciliation, reconciliation, love, mercy, grace. There might be punishment in it, but guess what? It's all for that outcome. He wants to restore you. He wants to wipe your slate clean. Not just what you have that you owe, but he wants to wipe clean the slate of what others owe you. So just be free of it. Don't carry it with you anymore. Be set free of it. And Satan is actively saying, no, 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 no. Be enslaved to it. Carry it with you, right? Because what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Right? Nah, sorry. I believe in failing because you learn from your mistakes in, in regards to that conversation, not in regards to this conversation. Now he's manipulating something that can be helpful and now it's hurtful. All right. Don't let the enemy outwit you. So Satan, again, wants, wants to take all of your debt. Right? He, he wants you to live a life in, in such bondage where you are focused on the fact that, wow, I, I don't deserve forgiveness. Right? I don't, I don't deserve the forgiveness of God. I, I don't. And he wants you to perpetuate that thinking. Constantly think that, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I'm good for nothing. I'm worthless. I'm good for nothing. I'm worthless. I don't deserve it. You say that long enough, you really buy it. And do you realize how offensive that is to God who looked at you who was worthless no question, and said, I'm paying the ultimate price for you. Don't demean God's work. You're calling God a fool, an idiot, when you constantly walk around saying, I'm worthless, I'm good for nothing, I'm worthless, I'm good for nothing. God says, no, I made you worth something. I made you worth everything because I paid the ultimate price for you. Who was worthless? But Satan, he doesn't want you to think about that. And so now you're incapable of being able to focus on that incomprehensible grace that God has given you. And you're focused on that. And now it's infected your one true, sure shot way of being able to actually receive the forgiveness that God wants to show you. Show it to somebody else. In other words, you are so caught up and incapable of recognizing how much God loves you and that he's forgiven you. And God is saying, here, I've got a way to help you. I know it's not easy, but you got to learn to forgive others. And that pain, that difficulty that you go through because they've wronged you so badly, they've cheated on you, they've abused you, they've lied to you, they've manipulated you, all those feelings that you're feeling, guess what? That's how I felt when you hurt me. And guess what my response to you was? I forgive you and I'm here to comfort you, and I'm here to help you, so come into my presence, come into my side. But if you don't do that, you don't know me. You don't know me, you know about me, but you don't know me. You say I'm forgiven, but you're walking in bondage. And God says, I want you to be forgiven, but you just won't be. So take this step, start forgiving others. Hmm. Satan wants to take the debt that you owe God, and the debt that others owe you, and he just wants to compound it. He just wants to continue to increase its worth in your life so that that becomes the greatest worth. And you live a life in bondage simply because of unforgiveness in your heart. And now you're enslaved to it. And, and that, that grief that forgiveness wants to set you free from is compounded. It's increased. It accrues interest. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. And you wake up one day, and you are so mentally and emotionally distressed, you don't know how to pick yourself up out of bed anymore. 
brings me to essentially my last point for you. You know, before I do that, I need, to, I need to say one more thing because I've mentioned it at the beginning of my sermon and I want to come back to it. It's the phrase, I forgive them, but I won't forget. Right? Let me say this. Um, you are created with memory. You're going to remember harms that people have done to you. So to say, if I'm a pastor giving advice to somebody saying, you need to forget all that, you need to forget all that, you need to forget it, literally like put it out of your mind, don't think about it, like, no, that's, that's not correct, right? And there's a reality that we need to understand what's done to us. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to truly forgive, right? But the idea in this sense of I forgive them, but I won't forget them is what I've talked about this whole time. No, you, you're, you're saying you forgive them, but you're still holding on to the pain of what they've done for you, and you're holding it over their heads. That's not right. And, and we've already talked about that. That's not right. So I, I would be careful about how often you use that phrase. You can say, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I pray that God might set me free of this so I don't even think about it anymore. Uh, I, but you know what? It's in my mind. Yep, that, that's, that's appropriate. That's not incorrect. But you need to stop walking around with that attitude of I forgive them, but I, I, I won't ever forget. I won't ever forget. That's, that's just not how it works with the Lord. So let me, let me say it to you this way, and this is where I'm going to kind of bring it all together. You need to make the memory of offenses a memorial, not a monument. You need to make the memory, the memory of what was done to you, the debts that were owed to you, of offense, a memorial, not a monument. Now, you might argue those are the same words, maybe, but I think we see a clear picture many times in this world and in Scripture where there is a difference between memorials and monuments. When it comes to memorials, we think Memorial Day. We think of something that was buried and something that was given and something that we honor and remember. Whereas a monument, most of the time, like we saw Saul had done and Absalom, David's son had done, they erected a monument in their own stature a monument that is meant to be a representation of look at what we've done. There are moments in scripture where a monument is referred to the glory of God and that's not incorrect, but you get the point of what I'm trying to say here, right? A memorial is this idea or a representation of something that, you know what? It's laid to rest and it represents something that's been laid to rest. It's done with. A monument is something that we always want in front of us to completely mesmerize us, to keep us deluded from the reality of what's going on around us. Just erect a monument and it's going to make everybody feel better, right? Wrong. All right. So a monument is something we want. A memorial reminds us of what was given. A monument becomes an idol we worship. A memorial is meant to be a reminder. When you choose to harbor unforgiveness in your heart, you erect a monument of yourself, your past, what everybody else owes you because of your ability, listen to this, to keep moving forward regardless of what punches you take. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that monument is a constant reminder. Look what I've been through. I've done this and nobody's going to stop me. Sounds good, but not when it's built upon the foundation of unforgiveness. Now it's not a monument that meant, is meant to glorify God. 
It's a monument that brings glory to yourself. You need to make your past hurts a memorial. Lay them to rest. You can look back and remember it, but just like Joseph, when he was reminded of all the wrong that was done to him, he used his son's names as a memorial and a monument. He goes, aren't you Matt Manasseh? Manasseh, yeah, I came from that, but look at where God has brought me. Look at where God has brought me. Lay that to rest. Using unforgiveness is assuming a moral position you have no right to occupy. This is where we really come back to Jesus. I told you, if you want to hold on to unforgiveness, don't come to Jesus because he's going to show you really quickly the error of your ways. Because Jesus, God, who has all authority, all power, all right, who is perfect, in whom there is no fault, no wrong, looked at us who wronged him in every way conceivable and imaginable, said, in the midst of our refusal to accept him, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And you're sitting here justifying why you shouldn't forgive somebody. When you're confronted with the reality of Jesus, it holds no weight and no bearing in your life any longer. you got to give it up. Peter asked Jesus how many times he was obligated to forgive a person. And Jesus says, the very question that you ask shows the error of your heart. Because you're trying to add it up and sum it up. It's unmerited. It's unreserved. You don't withhold it. When you choose to forgive, it's because of the, listen to me, it's because of the memorial of the cross. That cross is to be a constant reminder to us, just like a gravestone, because that's what it is. Look at what was done for me. When you look at the cross, it needs to be a constant reminder that you were given debt forgiveness that you never deserved, that you owed. And when you look at that cross, it's got to be a reminder, yeah, they owe me. But I owe Jesus, and so just as he forgives me, I forgive them. And I'm not going to just forgive them in my manner of speaking. I'm going to comfort them. I'm going to invite them to my side, into my presence, and I'm going to help them. Man, that's what we're called to do as believers of Jesus Christ. Every time you look at that cross, I want you to remember, I owed a debt that I couldn't pay that he paid for me. Forgiveness must never be warped into something that is all about us. It's the last, last little addition that I'm giving you that my wife actually talked with me about. It's the idea that forgiveness is more for you than the individual. That's not true. Forgiveness is essential to your freedom. Yeah, you're, you're going to experience mental and emotional freedom. And you need forgiveness to experience that. So it does affect you in that light. But if you make forgiveness the object of, uh, excuse me, if, if you make specifically forgiveness all about you rather than about the individual that's experiencing debt forgiveness, man, you've just done something that glorifies yourself even further. And you're going to continue to remain in bondage because now that's not forgiveness. That's that idea of I have a tool to exercise over your life and you have no power over me. And I'm going to remind you of that. That's, that's not it. That's not love. Would you stand with me on your feet here today? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
describes love in this way. It says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Keeps no record of wrongs. Maybe some of you here today are holding on to wrongs that were perpetrated against you. And, and you're saying, man, I want to know God in a way that I haven't known him before. And I want to love and experience the love of God and share the love of God the way that I see his word wants me to share. But I'm struggling with it. I'm, I'm finding it difficult right now. Well, I encourage you, you cannot experience that love without first employing godly biblical forgiveness. And if you want to know how to do that, look to the cross. Look to Jesus. Stop holding on to that wrongdoing that was perpetrated against you. Stop holding on to the pain of the past that you vividly remember. Stop holding on. You can remember it, but remember the fact that it's let go. It's set, I'm set free in Jesus' name. It doesn't hold power over me. Yeah, it did happen to me, but I'm free. And I've showed my freedom because I am not a captive to unforgiveness anymore. I'm set free. So come on, do you want to be set free in this place? Yes. Amen. I want you all right now, just with me. Would you join me? Just if you're willing, raise your hands with me in this place. And I just want you to call on the Lord right now. Just say, Lord Jesus, right now, teach me to forgive. Teach me to forgive as you forgave. Those people that have hurt me, teach me to forgive them. Help me to be willing to forgive the debt they owe me. Father, right now I pray just for every individual in this room. Father, I pray for those that are just so crippled in the bondage of the chains of the enemy that have been lied over them for so many years. I pray for those right now that have been walking with a, a, a heart of stone, a heart of anger, a heart of bitterness. Father, I pray right now that you, Holy Spirit, would uncover that root of bitterness and you would uproot it because it's, it's just beneath the soil and it's growing its roots deep so that it wants to remain in our lives. But Father, uproot that bitterness right now that unforgiveness has caused to grow in our lives. Uprooted, I pray in Jesus' name. I pray that we would be set free from it. Father, would we walk in the fullness of your love? Would we walk in the knowledge of God? The, the fact that we get to know you because of the love that you have shown us that we show others. Father, I pray that we would never allow this topic, this concept to become so mundane to us that we hear forgiveness or we hear love and we go, oh yeah, that, that's that, 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 yeah, that's what God wants for me. And it just becomes so subpar to us. Jesus, I pray that it would hold ultimate authority, ultimate weight as we seek to follow you to the utmost of our ability. Holy Spirit, teach us, teach us to be able to forgive in ways that we just struggle so hard to. Father, those people that we see with such disdain and with such hatred that we harbor such resentment towards. Right now, Jesus, I pray that we would recognize they are a child of God no matter how wrong they are, no matter how wicked they might be. They're created in your image. And it's just sin that has so infected their lives. Father, I pray that we would not, we would not view people with, with such arrogance and pride to think that, that we have a right to choose who deserves our forgiveness. Father, change that in us. Please, I pray. Father, for those that have, for those that have walked in this manner in a, in a worthy way, Jesus, for those that 
have willfully chosen to forgive in spite of how difficult it is, bless them right now, I pray in Jesus' name. Bless them right now in Jesus' name. Show them how much of a gracious and good God you are, especially to those of us that prove ourselves to be mature Christians, Christians that are walking and passing the tests that are presented before us in this life that is so difficult. Bless my brothers and sisters who have true hearts of forgiveness. Father, continue to give them the means and the ability to exercise that grace, Father. Let the cross be a reminder for them, Jesus. Let them not grow weary in doing good, I pray right now, but let them keep on living, living as you have called us to live. Father, I, I thank you for what you're doing in this place. Father, I thank you now for the work that's going to be carried into our homes. I thank you right now, Jesus, for the conversations that are going to happen between spouses, the honesty and the transparency. I thank you, Lord, for the reconciliation that's going to happen between siblings, Father, between parents and children, Father, between lifelong friends that, that have just grown astray because of betrayal. Father, I thank you right now in Jesus' name for the lives that truly are going to be set free because of the choice to forgive right now, for the marriages that are going to be restored, for the families that are going to be made whole right now. Father, just place that everlasting conviction upon heart that might want to deviate from that, that might want to avoid that, Jesus. And I pray that they would say it's only because of you and it's only through you that we can experience that freedom. So, Father, I thank you. Father, I lift your name on high. We worship you, we praise you, and in Jesus' name, the people of God said, amen, amen, amen. amen. Hey, God bless you.